I'd invite you to turn to our text, Matthew 26, verse 31. Matthew 26, verse 31. Uh, what we're going to get into today, just through 46, it's, it, it, we're talking about the situation that's facing Jesus the day before he died. In fact, the very next day is the events of the cross. And we, we kind of reflected on that at our Good Friday service a couple of days ago. Uh, if you were there, you kind of um, felt the somberness, um, yet it's with expectation that we celebrated those things. And this is kind of where we're getting at. But Jesus gives his disciples this, almost this, uh, this warning in this text. And basically things were going to change drastically for what they understood. What they thought Jesus had come to do, Jesus was just demonstrating exactly what it was. And it was catching them off guard at every turn, it seemed. So let's read through the text, verse 31 through 46. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And and again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Would you pray with me before we go any further? Lord, we believe as your people that your words give life. Every word that we've read is, is true, not only historically, but in, in the context of our day and age. And Father, we need the Spirit to, to come and, and enlighten our minds. So we pray that your will would be done here. Just as Jesus prayed, Father, um, whatever we're facing today, we pray that not our will but yours be done. And so as we have, we've intentionally gathered here, before we go and maybe have our Easter celebrations, whatever that may look like, Lord, we've gathered here to hear from you, and we know that you have an intentional thing to say to everyone who's hearing, and so we pray that you give us ears to hear this morning. As Jason prayed, Lord, capture our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen. So this starts off by Jesus giving this warning, and then, you know, Peter, well, you know Peter. 
Peter responds and he says, Lord, even if they all fall away, you can kind of almost hear the sarcasm a little bit in his voice. Even if they all fall away, I will never fall away. I mean, he even says, even if you, even if I have to die with you, I'm not going to fall away. I'll never do that. I think we could kind of insert in here, maybe some more modern day language and just say, Peter is thinking, well, you know, Jesus, we've been through a lot together the last three years. I know myself probably better than you know me at this point, you know, and, and that's not me. I'm not that guy. You don't need to worry about me, Peter's saying. As I was studying and, and reading through this this week, I could not help but be faced with the truth that I am so much like Peter. And I've, I've got to believe that you're a little bit like me at least, and you are a lot like Peter. And what I mean is, is this. You know, our comments are more like, um, you know, well... Lord, I know myself. This, this won't cause me to sin. I can do, I can watch this and be okay. Or I can be around this situation and not fall into temptation. I can do these things. Don't worry about me. I know myself probably better than you know me. Right now, we may not verbalize this kind of, of thought, but it's there, isn't it? It, it is, and I'm afraid how dangerous it is. Uh, a pretty popular TV show started up again recently, and uh, and I get the appeal of watching something like this. Uh, the acting is great. The special effects are incredible. It's got a really good storyline, and, and that's what good stories do. They, they draw you in. They keep you wanting more. But when a good story is mixed with a bunch of stuff that God tells Christians to run away from, we have a decision to make, don't we? We really do. So this is not, I know I'm starting off our time together this morning with a real kind of in-your-face like uh, application here, but this is, this is what I see and what the Lord impressed on me this week is we have a decision to make. And, and here's, here's the first point um, that I'm getting at. We have freedom in Christ, don't we? Brothers and sisters, we have freedom in Christ, but that is not freedom to go do whatever you want to do. It's not freedom to watch whatever you want to watch, go wherever you want to go. We often take these kind of principles back to what we teach our kids, right? Simplify them down to things like Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's a pretty sound theological statement. Good to teach your kids that. Another pretty sound theological statement is the song, Be Careful Little Eyes What You See. We're going to sing it together, but you all know the song. Our freedom in Christ causes us to evaluate things differently. Our freedom in Christ and our love for him should cause us as Christians to evaluate things differently. We don't look at something the same way a non-Christian does. That's just the reality of the new nature that we have in Christ. And so whether it's a TV show or a movie or a place to go and do things with your friends or whatever the case may be, our grid that we look through, should I do this or not, is different than the world's. God designed it that way, right? We are part of the church. We are called out of the world. We're not the same. We can't be the same. So often, I think Christians tiptoe this line instead of running from the sin. Like we tiptoe on the line. Well, I could do this and still be a, a, a Christian. Instead, we should run from that. 
We should flee from it. I mean, we see in your notes, we've got it in 1 Peter 2, 11, abstain, flee from the passions of the flesh. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 22, flee youthful passions and, and desires and lusts. We say, well, I know myself. I know I could handle that. It won't affect me. I won't go that far. And yet, look at how similar we sound to Peter just hours before he would betray Christ. The pressures of indwelling sin and the forces of this world will weigh heavy on you. You have decision to make. Instead of denying that you're capable of falling away like like Peter did, follow the instructions of Scripture. Run from sin. I would, in fact, encourage you, kill sin, right? We talked about that about a month ago. Kill sin or sin will be killing you. We need to kill, put, a, put to death the things of this world, the things of our flesh, and leave no room for the strongholds of Satan. Jesus says that the 11 disciples um, would fall away. 11 because Judas was at, with the high priest, uh, betraying him at the time. But fall away is, is this word uh, in the Greek called scandalizo. You, you can hear where we get the word scandal in that scandalous. It literally means to trip up or to offend. And I think even the King James version says, you all will be offended at me this very night. Jesus says what that is getting at is that the disciples were going to be so shocked. They were going to be so disappointed. They're going to be so offended. They're going to be so tripped up at Jesus death that were in their own strength. were up to themselves the courage of their own hearts, they would have fallen away. They would have lost faith. They would have gone. John chapter 17, you don't have to turn there, but maybe make a note of it. John chapter 17 captures Jesus' prayer for the disciples. And not just the disciples that were walking with him, but those who would come after him, those who would also believe that's you and I. And he, and he prayed this prayer before he was betrayed before he was captured and arrested. If we look back and read that chapter, we see that Jesus prays for you. Is that, an, is that an amazing thought? Have you ever heard that? Jesus prays for you. In John chapter 17, <clears throat> chapter 17, he prays for you. He prays that we would, believers today, would behold the Father's glory that we may know the Father as He does, and that we would have the love of the Father in us as He has the love of the Father in Him. This is incredible. You and me and Peter, we say, well, Jesus, don't you know us better than that? Don't you know that we wouldn't fall away? Guys, Jesus does know us better than that, and that's why He knows we would fall away, and that's why He prays for us. Were it not for Jesus' intercession on our behalf, every one of us, would abandon the faith when times get tough and be content to chase after the lesser things of the world. Every one of us would, myself included. But glory be to God that we are kept by His Son through the Spirit within the Father. This is, this is joy. Knowing what was in their hearts and still loving them, though, Jesus takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane. I want to talk title of the sermon is the, the garden and the cup. And just, I want to focus on the garden because this was a neat thing that I read this week. The garden of Gethsemane is located at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. 
Okay, you, that's probably a familiar term from reading scripture. What do you think the Mount of Olives is known for? Olive trees, right? Olives, olive trees. So <clears throat> bottom of the Mount of Olives, lots of olive trees. Um, and since I know no one likes eating olives by themselves, Ugh. Ugh. They would squeeze the olives, wouldn't they? There was a press. Half of my family loves olives. They can have them. Uh, it, there's a good chance that there was a public olive press in the Garden of Gethsemane area. So when people would pick the olives, they would take them and they would press, they would squeeze. Sometimes they would step on and get the, the olive oil out of the olives. And they did it there at the bottom of the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is, this is not a coincidence. I want us to notice the imagery and the foreshadowing even in this. So think about the olives. The olives were taken and put together and they were crushed. They were pressed in order to get what was most valuable from them. You see where I'm going with this? Jesus would soon be pressed, would be crushed, so that sinners could receive what was most precious, his blood, which would cover sin and make us right before God. What a treasure that lies just beneath the surface of Scripture. And this is just one evidence and one reason why we, we, we take sections of Scripture like this at a time so that we could kind of start to plumb these depths on Sunday mornings together. So they're all in the garden, right? Back to the story. They're all in the garden. Jesus goes off to another part and he takes a few people with him. Peter, we're told, and then the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and they go a little further in to pray. And it says that Jesus was sorrowful and troubled even unto death. And he says this to his, to his really his, some of his closest friends there. Peter, James, and John. And he asks them to do a couple of things. He says, wait and watch and pray. But they can't do it, can they? They can't stay awake. They cannot complete the job that Jesus has given them. Now, we read this text, as probably you have. You read, we read this text and we think, man, those guys, they should have gone to bed earlier the night before then they would have been awake for this important night in Jesus' life, right? We, we kind of start to throw some shade and cast some blame on these guys, but it wasn't that they were just being lazy, I don't think. It wasn't just that they'd had a long day the day before and they were super tired. They were, or that they were even unconcerned with what Jesus was, was trying to include them in. Um, Luke's gospel uses the phrase that Jesus found them sleeping for sorrow. I don't know exactly everything that that encompasses, but I got to believe that it goes back to what he just revealed to them. He just told them in no kind of, you know, shaded words, like he wasn't trying to cover or obscure it at all. I'm going to be handed over to sinners to be put to death. And, and this was just rolling around in their minds, right? They, they had the Passover, yeah, but then he... He broke the bread and said it was going to be like him. All of these things are rolling around in their minds and, and they don't know what to think. And I got to believe that it just exhausted them. They, it was like, it was more than what their human minds could handle. 
And, and so they just, they couldn't take it. They just grew weary. Now, it's interesting to note that at least in Matthew's account, Jesus goes up to Peter in particular here. And he says, so you couldn't watch with me just one hour? Now, it could, we could easily read a lot of sarcasm into that, that question, right? So you, you couldn't even make it one hour, huh? But I, I'm not quite sure that's what Jesus had in mind. But Peter did just say he would die for him. And now he, he can't even stay awake for him. And I, I think Peter is, is hearing this. I think Jesus is pointing this out. And I just got to imagine that, that Peter was just cut by this. Wouldn't you, if you, when you've, and we've all been there, when you told someone, I'll do that, and you forget, or you don't get to it, and then they're like, hey, did you do this? And it's like, you hadn't thought about it until that point, and you're like, oh no. Just cut him. Just gut-wrenching kind of a thing for Peter to hear. But guys, Jesus is speaking this to you and me. You, you couldn't even wait for a week, for an answer for your prayer. You couldn't wait a day. You couldn't wait two months. You couldn't wait. Don't you know me by now? You couldn't just wait one hour, he said. Now, as we've seen in preceding weeks, and we're not going to go recap all of these things, but we saw that Christians are being asked to wait, right? That's built into the life of a believer. Like You're going to have to wait for stuff. You're going to have to wait because we're waiting for his return currently. We're in that process. We're in that middle ground. But we're not just supposed to sit around and twiddle our thumbs and, you know, make more money and all of these things. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to wait well. We're called to wait and do the things that God has told us to do while we're waiting. Part of Jesus' disciple of being his disciple is, is waiting. And so if no one has ever told you that following Christ was going to be difficult, hear it today. Following Jesus will have its challenges, but it will always, every time, be worth it. John sixteen twenty two, Jesus says, Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I'll see you again. And your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. The trials that we have aren't fun at the time, but the joy that comes because of Christ no one can take from believers. How quickly we abandon the words of our Savior when this life just presses in on us. Brothers and sisters, can you just wait for an hour? Can you stay awake? Can you just wait for a little while? Now, I want to point out and be sure that we understand, I don't think Jesus is trying to shame Peter here. And I don't think he wants to shame us in asking that kind of a question to us. In reality, I think what's going on here is that Jesus is actually giving grace to Peter. It doesn't look like that all the time. It doesn't look like that maybe here on the surface. But he's helping Peter understand and see that in his effort alone, he cannot do what God has called him to do. He cannot do what Jesus has called him to do. Jesus is helping Peter understand that he needs to be consistently dependent on the Savior. Regularly dependent on him. You think you can stay awake in your own strength? You think you can wait 
and do the things you're called to do in your own strength, it's not going to happen. We cannot do it. Your spirit, and Jesus points it out here, your spirit may be willing, but guess what? Your flesh is weak. It's weak. Brothers and sisters, Jesus helps us see and understand that we cannot do what he's called us to do in our own effort and in our own ability alone. Just like Peter, staying awake, you and I cannot wait well in our own strength alone, in our own power alone. Our best intentions, our hardest efforts will not do. They will fall short, just like Peter's did. Just like Peter's. You know why? Because we were meant to be dependent on the Savior. We were meant to be dependent on Him. We sing a song here often called, All I Have is Christ. It's an amazing song. And one of the lines in there hits this nail right on the head. It says, the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. The strength to follow Jesus properly, correctly, consistently cannot come from within us in our own strength, brothers and sisters. And this is what Jesus is teaching Peter. And this is what he's teaching us. Can't come from us. If our desire is to honor God and follow Jesus, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. We have to. There's no other way to do this. If you think that you can do it on your own, you're not resting in the Savior. While we wait as we're called to wait, doing the things that he's called us to do, while we wait, Jesus tells us that there's a joy in that that no one can take. Thank God for his grace in putting us in situations like Peter's where we have to be dependent on the Savior. Now, I will just kind of throw this out, that that is usually not a position we would ever ask to be in, is it? That, that's a kind of grace that we don't like or appreciate in the moment very often, where we're forced to rely. We have, we're backed in a corner, and we have no, no other option but to fall on Jesus. And yet, I think this is where God wants us. Now, I'm going to quickly go through a part in your notes, it's kind of outlined by big lines. There's something here that, that I read that I thought would be helpful. Um, Jesus, in this moment where he brings Peter and James and John in to the garden and prays with them, he, he invites his friends into a situation that many of us would not do. Do you wrestle with what to believe when life is hard, when life hurts? Does your mind seem to just like wage war against itself constantly? On a night when Jesus had every reason to slip into depression or to get caught up in the chaos of anxiety and not not wanting to do, not knowing what was happening, not being able to, to handle it, in that same moment, Jesus invites friends in to bear this with him. Even people that he knows cannot fully comfort him, cannot fully identify with him. Jesus brings broken and needy people into what he is doing. And guys, he's still doing that now because this room is full of us, broken and needy people. And he's using us to accomplish his purposes. He's bringing us into this. He invites us into his life even today. Now, it's true. You'll, you'll share in his suffering to a degree, persecution to some extent, but it will be worth it because we also share in his everlasting life. There are six things 
that John Piper points out six ways that Jesus fought depression and anxiety. They're in your notes. I'm just going to go through them quickly. They're all represented right in order in this text. I thought it was very helpful. Number one, he chose some close friends to be with him. He surrounded himself with people that he knew loved him. They weren't perfect, but they were his friends. Number two, he opened his soul to them. Remember, he said, my soul is, is sorrowful, even to death. And they hadn't heard him talk like this before. Jesus was letting them in. He opened his soul to them. He asked for their intercession and partnership in the battle against depression and anxiety. He asked them to wait and watch and pray. He poured out his heart to his father in prayer, didn't he? In verse 39, he says, My father, if, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He rested his soul, though, in the sovereign wisdom of God because in the end, he said, Nevertheless, not what I will, but yours be done. Lastly, he fixed his eyes on the glorious future grace that awaited him on the other side of the cross. This is beautiful. We see this in Hebrews 12. It says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Despite the the suffering on the cross, despite the shame, despite people spitting in his face despite being his crown of thorns being shoved into his skull his beard being ripped from his face he endured all of that for the joy set before him this is in your notes too it's a quote from john piper when something drops into your life that seems to threaten your future remember this the first shock waves of the bomb of, in your heart, like the one Jesus felt in Gethsemane, they're not sin. The real danger is a yielding to them, giving in, putting up no spiritual fight. In Gethsemane, Jesus shows us another way, not painless and not passive. Follow him. Find your trusted spiritual friends. Open your soul to them. Ask them to watch with you and pray. Pour out your soul to the Father. Rest in the sovereign wisdom of God and fix your eyes on the joy set before you and the precious and magnificent promises of God. That's how we battle the temptation to fall into despair, depression, and anxiety. Specifically today, I want to focus on the simple prayer of Jesus, and this is wrapping things up. The, The simple prayer of Jesus. This is just a couple sentences, just a few words long, When Jesus said, my father, if it be possible, in verse 39, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In verse 42, he says the same thing. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He prayed that same prayer three times. Three times, right? Three times. That's the proper way to say three in sign language. Is it like this or like this? Okay, got it. Okay. Three times, and he mentions the cup, right? So, so what is the cup? Kids, this is one of the questions that Jason asked you to listen for, so, so hear me. Um, Jesus asks the Father to take this cup away. So we should probably understand this is not a pleasant thing to drink this cup. Other passages in Scripture help us understand what this cup is all about. They're in your notes too, but I want to read them from Jeremiah twenty-five fifteen. 
Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Cup of the wine of wrath. Make the enemies drink it. Isaiah fifty-one seventeen, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Dregs is, uh, I found out, kind of that, the backwash at the bottom of a container. That, I know that's gross, I'm sorry. I've got four kids, I see it a lot. Um, <laughs> that stuff, even, even the sediment that's at the bottom, you drink it all. Every bit to the dregs means every last drop. Revelation 14, 9 and 10. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Brothers and sisters, the cup that Jesus was going to drink was the cup of God's wrath against sin. Every bit of God's anger against sin, Jesus was going to drink down to the dregs. This cup has accumulated the fury of God against all kinds of sins. We see these, some of them, listed in Colossians 3, 5, and 8. Murder, adultery, careless words, dishonoring thoughts, lies, idolatry, anger, and the list just continues to go on. On all of these things, it says there, the wrath of God is coming because of sin. Wrath and God's anger at sin is a consistent response of a holy God throughout Scripture, though. I want us to understand this. Many of us have this idea of the wrath of God thinking that it's unfair that he has this kind of an attitude. This is a consistent uh response of God throughout history. And it should be. Think about this. If sin hurts us, which it does, and if sin will ultimately separate us from God, which it will, then it's right and actually loving of God to hate the thing that destroys us. God is a good God because he hates sin and cannot tolerate it. And in all of this, lies the great mystery, how can a sinful person be reconciled to a holy God? How can you and I, with indwelling sin, from the beginning of our existence, how can we be reconciled back to a holy God when we're so marked and marred by sin? How can, a, how can God be righteous and holy and still love rebellious sinners who are due his wrath. We deserve it. Now, even in a worldly sense, just a strictly a worldly judicial system sense, judges who let the guilty go free or who condemn innocent people are despicable to us, right? Those kinds of people should not be sitting in places of authority. This is not who God is. Uh, Proverbs seventeen fifteen calls that kind of a judge an abomination. Someone who lets the guilty go free, someone who incarcerates the innocent, that's an abomination. So if God, who's holy and right and perfect, 
lets a sinner who's not all of those things, who's none of those things, how can God then not be an abomination in himself? This is, this is a mystery. This is a, a wonderful thing to think about today. And David Platt points something out that I think is really helpful here. He points out how revealing it is that God's pardoning of the guilty is hardly ever the problem we normally identify. He says this, not many people in our culture are losing sleep over how God can be just and kind to sinners at the same time. Instead, we are so warped in our thinking that we point the finger at God and say, how can you punish sinners? How can you let people go to hell? But the question of the Bible is really just the opposite. How can God be just and right and still let sinners into heaven? So when you think of it in that context, we see that Christ didn't actually die ultimately for you and for me. He did do that. But ultimately, those reasons are, are incomplete. Ultimately, Christ died for God. He died for you and for me and for everyone else who believes. But first and foremost, he died to satisfy the wrath of a holy God. Watchman Nee said this. He said, if I would appreciate the blood of Christ, I must accept God's valuation of it. For the blood is primarily not for me, but for God. The cross is God's answer to this divine problem. The cross vindicates God's holy character before it rescues us. It does both of those things, but in that order. Make no mistake, the cross does that. It it does both of those things. It satisfied God and it saves us. But the cup that contains the punishment for all the sins of the guilty, that's the cup that Jesus was to drink on the cross. And so there in the garden, not in the garden, there on Golgotha on the hill, our Savior drank God's cup of burning anger down to the dregs. The very bottom. Every drop of the wrath of God, He drank, He took, He absorbed for us. God poured out his wrath, his full, undiluted wrath onto his son in our place. And he did it so that sinners who repent and turn to Christ might become something that was impossible in their own strength. Jesus absorbed God's righteous wrath so that we might actually become sons and daughters of the king. Paul remembers this great event in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, in our own effort, in our own strength, as we've already seen, we cannot do that. We can't even stay awake for an hour. We can't even wait for God to answer prayer for a week or a month. But he became sin so that we might become God's righteousness. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus, the implication of this is nothing less than incredible, life-changing, life-altering. It means that God will never be angry again at those who have placed their faith in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus drank the cup. He drank the cup. He paid the price. He took our place on the cross. What we deserve, 
he took instead. Now, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, he may discipline you. He will discipline you because Hebrews 12 says only good fathers actually discipline their children. And if you're not being disciplined by the Lord, you're not his. So he will discipline you because he loves you. And though that may happen, he will never be angry at you because Jesus took it all on the cross. Jesus paid it all. He took all of our sin. He took all of our debt. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that God could extend the cup of his fellowship to us. Let me say that again. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that God could extend the cup of his fellowship to us. It might include temporary suffering. It might include difficult things in this life, but it won't include the wrath of God because we don't get wrath anymore. Now we get God. We don't get wrath. We get God. We get the sweet, satisfying reality of an eternal relationship with God in Jesus through the spirit. This is the joy of Easter because Jesus accomplished that on the cross and then he put an exclamation point and guaranteed it with the empty tomb. The cup that we get to drink now forever is not the cup of God's wrath. Jesus already drank it to the dregs. The cup we get to drink is a relationship with the Father. And brothers and sisters, let me encourage you on a day like today. This is the same drink. This is the same cup that we hold out and offer to people that don't know Christ. We hold out this cup of living water, this cup of eternal life. And we say, come drink this cup with us because Jesus drank that cup for you. That's what we get to say on a day like today. Come join us in this feast. We get this kind of a relationship with a loving God because Jesus took the sin. Jesus died in our place. Salvation, brothers and sisters, is still found in this magnificent exchange. And it's still available for you today. Our, our prayer as a church, my prayer as a pastor, is that the day would not end before you would cry out to God in repentance and salvation. What a day, like the day he rose, the day that we celebrate his resurrection, to surrender to him. So our encouragement, my encouragement would be, as we sing our final song together for the day, to let the Spirit move in your heart. Band, you can come on up as I pray. Father, God, we can't, in our own effort, some of us are trying that. Lord, we're trying day by day to do the right thing, to say the right words, to behave the right way, and we're trying to check these boxes so that you're not mad at us anymore. And that's not the solution that you've given on how to be right with you. You've told us to turn our eyes from our own desires from the things of this world, to set them on Christ and believe. Believe in the Son and you will have life. Do not believe, reject Him. And it says in John 3.36 that your wrath remains on us. So Father, in a very real sense, for every Christian, 
Jesus took the full brunt of, the, of your wrath on him on the cross. All we do is believe in faith. But for everyone who doesn't believe, Lord, the moment they breathe their last, your wrath will fall on them in full force. Every sin that they have accumulated in their life will come crashing down and it's more than they can bear and they will suffer under that for all eternity. Father, we don't want that for them. You do not want that for them. So my prayer today, this morning, is that all of those who've, who've not trusted Christ, they would turn in repentance and faith today. Use this time to move in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.